We all have a story to tell. Let's tell yours. Welcome to the Intellectual People Podcast with your host, Jason. Come together and listen to journey stories and more from interesting people. Welcome your host, Jason. Welcome to the Intellectual People Podcast. I often post on forums, and I'd like to personally thank those forum owners for allowing me to post on those forums. In no particular order, they are audiosciencereview.com, audiocircle.com, audioshark.org, audiophilestyle.com, AV Nirvana, which is also the home of Rumi Q Wizard and Audio Lens, DIYaudio.com, gears.com, and Parts Express Forum. Thank you so much and enjoy. Today on the Intellectual People Podcast, I have Jim from zerosurge.com. How are you doing today, Jim? Hey, how are you? We're staying warm here in the frozen tundra of New Jersey. <laughs> All right, Jim. Tell me what Zero Surge is. Uh, we're a manufacturer of surge protection. Uh, what we do is we use a different kind of surge protection, but we're basically a, a manufacturer of surge protection. And that's pretty much the only thing we do. Did you always dream of getting into surge protection? Nope, not at all. I didn't even know I would get into this until uh, 2013, so. Okay, let's go back into your earlier days and tell me how you got to where you're at now. So are you an electrical engineer? Uh, no, I actually started out in chemistry. Interesting. So, but I've always been involved in electronics side of chemistry. Okay. So, you know, you could be into biotech or pharmaceutical or, you know, just generic organic chemistry like petroleum and those kind of things, plastics. I started out, my first chemistry job was doing uh, ceramic processing, so high tech ceramics for uh, substrates for microchips. So, we had a contract. Um, it's kind of fun. We did it with the uh, Coors. So most people don't realize Coors is a very large ceramic company. They do a lot of um, electronic ceramics. And so we had a joint venture with them when I was working at WR Grace. And we would make these substrates out of aluminum nitride and put chips on them. And then the chips would go to the military. It was for, I think it was Hughes Aircraft at the time. Do you know what they were using those chips for? Uh, no. No, oh. we never got that. Okay. I was, I was too low on the totem pole for that one. <laughs> and then what was after that position? So we, um, after that, I moved to a company that did uh, testing. Uh, it was a company called Trace Laboratories. So they test uh, circuit boards and for the military and for commercial applications. And so I was more of the chemist side of it. So I did the material testing uh, for, for, you know, alloy composition of the copper on the traces uh, look for contamination on circuit boards, used infrared analysis to look for contamination. Uh, we use uh, electron microscopy, those kind of things, failure analysis. And I did that for a few years. And then um, my wife got a job in New Jersey. So we moved to New Jersey uh, in 97. And then I worked for a uh, solder plant, again, electronics, uh, the material side, doing QC for them. And that was a brutal kind of job because it's uh you know we had 15 solder pots maybe that were thousands of pounds of hot molten material uh and you know even in the winter time you were sweating 
you know, <laughs> going into the plant because you had to wear all the protective gear too. Right. So you're wearing, you know, the the heavy-duty clothing, the, the steel-toed shoes, all that stuff. And so after a couple of years of that, I just said, all right, that's enough of that, and uh, worked for an adhesive company that was also into electronic adhesives. They actually made the dye-attached adhesive for chips, and they had a lot of contracts with, like, the big telecoms, Cisco's, those kind of companies. But they also had this little smart card line where they made smart cards. And these are the original, like, um, early RFID chips. So they were okay. taking them from Texas Instruments and uh, Siemens and some other companies, and they were using the the 13.56, I think, megahertz chips, and they would make applications out of them. And I was just kind of on the periphery of that, helping them with some things. And the 2000 election happened, so the Bush-Gore election. And our boss said, hey, we can make a voting machine that's better than these things that are failing. So we ended up making a voting machine. Oh. And because I was the only one in the office that growing up near D.C., I had more of a – I mean, I wasn't political, but I knew about the process. And so um, I ended up being the person that was the QC manager for this product and ended up um, even testifying in Congress. I got to do, sit in front of one of those – tables and they asked me questions, you know, why, why is your voting machine different? And uh, our thing was that we gave you a receipt that had a random number because in voting, you're now not, it used to be, voting used to not be private. You literally used to go to the courthouse and said, I vote for John. And then the newspapers would write it down and they tabulate it and say, okay, 15 people voted for John, you know, 10 people voted for Jim. That's the way it used to be until the 1900s. And then it became private for some reason. So we had this little receipt and it had the random number. So you could go back and check to see if the vote was counted and if it was counted correctly. And so that was our kind of our gimmick. Um, and we also had some other things and it was computerized. And so the blind people could vote independently. And we actually had like a screen reader that would read. Uh, it was actually, um, in fact, the first sale we did was to the American uh, National, Feder National Federation for the Blind bought our first machine and uh, used it to demonstrate how the blind can vote independently. That's wonderful. So, you know, so it was kind of an interesting, but it was, uh, you know, long hours, travel all around the country. Um, you go to a lot of conferences, election people like to party. They like to stay up to four in the morning, you know, because this is like their one week of the year. They get to go out and be away from the government and their their bosses and stuff. And so but I was going to all the different ones. So it was like, you know, it was one week for them, but it was one week a month for me. So it was like crazy. And um, it was just was too much. And then once the Gulf War happened, it was once the second, once we went into Iraq, because we had gone into Afghanistan, right? So then Iraq happened, all the money dried up. So it was just kind of like, all right, I'm getting out of here. So my brother-in-law had a business that was selling model airplane, like the drones and helicopters and stuff. And this is all before most people knew about those quadcopters and things like that. Because sure. his father had been doing it for 30 years. So, um, and at a hobby store and they put him online and it went from like one order a day to 10 orders a day to, hey, we need help. <laughs> so I was, I helped him uh, with the customer service and packing orders. And then we moved out of a house and into a warehouse and actually had 
like two or 300 hobby stores that we sold to and we were importing and uh, getting stuff from everywhere and just selling it. And we had our own designs for things. And um, Dave went to China and sourced brushless motors from, there were actually little IBM computer CD-ROM motors mm. and we converted them into airplane motors put a little propeller shaft on them and everything. And it was um, an interesting thing. I mean, Dave's, you know, to his credit, probably a lot of the reasons we have these low cost flying things is because of what we started there. Because at the time, the brushless motors were almost $200 and you had to get them from like Czechoslovakia or something. Does that and, uh, still exist? Does his business? Um, it's still, no, I think he shut it down because, um, yeah, he's, he's, he's a computer programmer by heart. So he kind of, Okay. We could kind of come. What happened was the 2008 recession happened. We kind of shrunk and then we were going pretty good for a while for about five years. And then it just kind of just kind of ended its course. Okay. Because then everybody started bringing in all these other things. And then there's a few other offshore places that just tanked the market. They basically took a $40 motor and made it $10. And so there was, there was no money to be made in the U.S. for doing that. Gotcha. Yeah. So it just kind of on its own, we just kind of were a victim of our own success in some way. Okay. And then what? Uh, and then I was kind of in between doing some selling of electronic components. And then I ran into zero surge trying to sell them uh, to Rudy, the, the founder. And um, he said he was uh, retiring and going to sell the business. And I said, Oh really? How much? Mm. Just kind of like as a, you know, conversational tool, you know, and um, I wasn't really serious about it at first. And he told me a price and I was like, huh, you know, we, that's something that uh, I said, well, I don't have the cash right away. And he said, well, I'll finance it. So I was like, oh, okay. So then uh, he started, we vetted each other out. He liked that, you know, I had a patent for the voting machine stuff and he's big in the patenting. He's probably has about 40, 50 patents to his name. Um, he has an interesting history too. I don't know if he would ever go on a, on a podcast, but he, he probably be a good storyteller. Cause he, um, he worked for RCA. I mean, he basically helped invent color television. I mean, some of his early patents are in color television. Mm. And so, um, you know, when RCA was the big TV company, you know, and so he wanted somebody who was going to be local, somebody who's going to take, had roots in the area in New Jersey and you know I'd been here 20 years at that point we have kids and you know in the schools and everything and my wife is from New Jersey so you know I think that's what um you know we, we kind of um synced up you know yep and he also liked the way you know my my goals for the company what I thought needed to be improved you know being that he was older he didn't know all the social media and stuff that you do nowadays and um you know, I wasn't going to spend on a, I wasn't going to like move us into a new building or, I mean, we're in an old chicken coop, you know, he built this business inside an old chicken coop. So, yeah. you know, um, so there's no reason to leave if it's working, you know? Right. Sure. And he had, he had other buyers that had been like, okay, we're going to move out of this. And he's like, where are you going to get the money to do that kind of stuff? So, right. you know, what are you going to, what are you really planning to do with the product? That's really the key. Did you go in as a buyer first or did you go in as a working for rudy first uh no i, I went in as a buyer you did basically okay yes. let's go back and just quickly if you don't mind explain yeah. 
who Rudy is and mm -hmm. what he means to Zero Surge from inception, if you would. Okay, so again, Rudy is a electrical engineer, very smart, but he's also uh, like a gentleman farmer kind of guy, right? He's very practical. He literally has a, you know, he has a chicken coop on his own house and uh, has some, he had uh, apple trees and he wasn't a big like a dairy farmer or something like that, but he had some chickens. And, um, you know, so he had that sensibility, a very practical guy, not very flashy, you know, wearing, you know, just button down, you know, flannel shirt kind of guy, you know, yep. and, um, but very smart, very, uh, you know, quiet. He's like a quiet genius. He's not a showman, you know, like more like me, I guess, <laughs> but, uh, he, uh, you know, very, so he started the company because he had finished working at, at RCA and he was consulting and one of his companies he consulted for, I think it was Samsung. And um, well, I know it was Samsung because we have the, we still have the plaque from them there, gave him a plaque for his work, but he was consulting in their um, facility, their data centers. And back then data centers were, you know, this is in the late eighties. So it's just basically you had the big mainframes, but then you had a bunch of rooms with, you know, 20 people with 20 computers doing, you know, cat drawings and stuff. Right. So he, f they started having failures of their printers and network equipment. And they're like, why just them? Why not the computers? And they're like, we're using surge protection, but it's not working. And so he said, well, let's figure out what's going on. What is a surge? What are they trying to do with the surge? And, you know, what's the problem? So he deduced that the surges were getting diverted to the ground line. And, you know, the ground line in a building um, is for our safety. You know, we're familiar with that third little tiny prong that is the, the ground pin. And which is the round one, right, Jim? Right, the round run, right, the okay. little tiny one. Yep. And um, so he, you know, realized that, uh, you know, the other <laughs> devices that use the ground line are the network equipment because they need ground as a reference point when their signal goes across. Because when you send a signal, it's in voltage, and voltage is a reference. It's re related to something, like how high... You know, if this is five volts and this is four volts, and this is three volts, it's relative to some base zero number. Right. And so you use the ground line as a reference. So if you change your ground line by putting surge damage on it, it can be above your signal or below it, or it could travel through that same line into the back of your printer, into the back of your network equipment. Mm. And that's what's burning out the equipment. So it's actually failing from the backside, not from the power side. Interesting. And so he you know said well how do we solve that problem and so he basically came up with the idea of using an inductor and a capacitive bank and so what we're doing is we're he looked at surges as you know ac power oscillates 60 times a second it goes up to 170,000 or 170 volts down to minus 170 and it oscillates and so anything that's vibrating faster than 60 hertz is a surge by definition. So we don't care if the surges uh, have a lot of voltage or if it has a lot of current. If it's going really fast or if it's really going, you know, really high. And be so he says, well, how do you handle both at the same time? The traditional surge protectors wait for just the height. They're looking for something to happen at a certain peak and then they they act after that. Okay. So what we're doing is we're saying, all right, 
let's just filter everything that's spinning faster than 60 hertz. So what engineers call low pass filter. We let low frequency pass through and we filter everything above that. So you use that, use an inductor, it's a magnetic kind of coil and then um, capacitors hold that energy and then we send it back out to the power company. So instead of putting it on the ground line, we put it on that second line that comes you know, out of the wall. So the first line is your, the line that brings power from the power company and then goes back out through the neutral, which goes out to the power company. Which for people listening that don't know wiring, there's typically three wires, right? There's a mm -hmm. green wire or bare copper wire, which is your ground. Mm -hmm. There's a white wire, which is your neutral. And then there's a black wire, which is your hot, correct? Right. Okay. Or line. Sometimes they call it the line. Line. Okay. And so, so yeah, so the, the line is coming, is the power coming from the power company, it goes through your device, which is considered the load, and then it goes back out through the neutral, back out to the power company to complete the circuit. And so um, we're, we're sending it back out to the power company, but at a very safe level, because we're just slowly bleeding it back out. Is that what it is? It's just really slowly going back out? Right, because the capacitors fill up to whatever level they fill up to. So, and then they have a very small hole. They, so you think of it like a bucket of water. You'll hear me talk a lot about using water as an analogy. So it's like the one really good analogy is like, you know, power is like going through your a hose, like water through a hose. And the car runs over the hose, you get a surge. Right. Right. So that's basically like a big motor pulling power out in your house. It causes a surge. And then you're trying to water these really sensitive grass seeds with this hose. Well, if a surge happens, you knock over the grass seeds, you'll kill them. So the way you do it is you have the water go out of the hose into a bucket that has a hole at the bottom that's the right size of water letting it out. And so we don't care if there's a surge in the bucket because the bucket's big enough to handle the surge. And that's one way of looking at it. I like that analogy. How many times a day are there surges, would you say, in, in the average home in, in the U.S.? Uh, well, the... IEEE, the, which is the group that a bunch of electrical engineers, they did a study years ago. And there's about a thousand surges a year that are the worst kind of surges. And then there's hundreds and hundreds during the day. Basically, anytime you turn on and off a light switch, you create a surge because you're interrupting that flow of water again. It's like somebody pinching the hose. So it could be hundreds of times in a building. In fact, 80% of surges come from inside your building, not from outside. So, you know, your coffee pot, every time it cycles on and off, your heating, air conditioning, ceiling fans, hair dryers, laser printers, you know, when they heat up, you know, pretty much any device that sucks power is going to interrupt that flow of power. Is it safe to say that surges, whether small or large, have an effect on electronic equipment? Yes, yes, because what they're doing is they're they're kind of shocking the components. So there's a rating for every component for how much shock it could take. So they do last, you know, they, they'll survive the first few times, even on the small surges, but it's kind of like what another company calls it electric rust. So it's just, it's like a, a, an erosive yeah. effect. And so eventually, you know, once it, once it reaches a certain level, it just catastrophically fails. How much will a zero surge unit protect in terms of, you're saying over voltage, right? If there's a surge and there's over voltage, 
is that saying that the capacitance of the zero surge unit is what is actually protecting so it doesn't go over a certain threshold of voltage? Uh, well, it's actually the inductor that's actually slowing down the speed of that surge because we don't care if it's in voltage or current. So if it's an inrush of current, which happens when you turn something on, just like you turn on a hose, you get that first burst of water coming out. It's the same thing. So we don't care where the surge, you know, what what component it is, as long as it's moving faster than it should, either in voltage or current. What is the specification for over voltage? What will your unit basically cut it off at? So X electrical device doesn't go above 100 and whatever the number is. Okay, so there's two ways of looking at this. So there's, we're, we're rated for two ways. One is um, what's called the VPR, which is the voltage protection rating. And that's the minimum level of voltage that will let go to a device. Now, UL, the underwriters uh, for safety, that's our organization that um, qualifies our product. That's, we, that's the organization we make our product to their specifications. Uh, they will not list anything below 330 volts. So they say if it's 330 or lower, that's what it is, 330. So ours technically is lower than 330. Um, it basically rides the wave. So we're actually following the peak of the wave. And so it depends on where you're measuring it, but at the peak, so it'd be like 180, 190 volts. It really doesn't allow that much through. Um, but then there's also the other aspect on the other end of the high end. If a surge energy, we're rated for a maximum of 6,000 volts through, because that's the max definition of a surge. Once you get past 6,000 volts, then you get an arc. So then it starts breaking down the insulation of the wire. So at that point, you know, you're talking, you're starting to talk about lightning at that point. Right. Which, and at that point, there's really nothing that's going to save it, right? No, lightning, there's nothing, there's nothing that um, prevents lightning from damaging things. Well, you can have some sacrificial things that'll try to divert lightning. I mean, that's what a lightning rod is. Um, but it still eats up lightning rods if it actually touches it. So, Got it. Some people buy surge protectors that have different technology, correct? Yes. What is that technology exactly? Uh, generally, they're... They're called shunt mode, which means they or they they divert the surge. So uh, they they're most of them use a component called a metal oxide varistor. Uh, we call it MOV. Just I know we don't like to use acronyms for this stuff, but we're gonna have to, or else I'll be saying metal oxide varistor fifty thousand times. So oh, you hear MOV. That's what we're talking about. Is basically anything that you'd buy at a store right now is basically uses an MOV. They're all uses. They all use the same technology. So what they're doing is they're waiting for the surge voltage to reach a certain level. And then at that point, they open up a gate to the ground line and then divert the, and so the energy will follow that low resistance to the ground line. And so it interrupts power for that brief amount of time. So if it's a 50 microsecond amount of time, which is 50 you know millionth of a second, it actually diverts the energy to the ground line, including all the good energy too not just the surge. So um, it's actually interrupting power at that point, technically. 
Um, now, you, you most devices have capacitors that hold power for a long period of time, so you can handle a 50-second, you know, interruption. But they're counting on that actually that that it exists, or else, um, you know, they would have problems. And so that's that's how they work. Are they bad? Bad. That's a loaded word. So I would say they're inefficient. They're not effective for what the problem is. Why is that? Because again, they they're waiting for the surge to happen. So ours is acting as soon as we sense that it's vibrating faster than 60 hertz. So we get it before it ever peaks to a certain level. Because even at 400 volts, you still are going to start causing damage to your components. Why are they so common if they're not necessarily ineffective, right? Because you're not saying they're ineffective. You're right. more... They're less effective. They're less effective, but they're also only effective once or twice, correct? Well, yeah, they're, they're basically... Okay, so the history of that, you have to understand the history of it. So power supplies used to be what's called linear. And so they were voltage, they were voltage sensitive. So back then, you know, back before the 80s, um, it made sense to use their kind of technology because you're using something that is voltage, that works on voltage to protect voltage sensitive equipment. Well, Apple is the first uh, to really use switch mode power supplies in full for their full lineup. And so since then, everything is switched to this switch mode power supply and they're, they're more energy efficient and, and some other advantages. And a switch mode power supply though is current sensitive. It's actually not voltage sensitive. Like your TV, you could plug it in to, and go bring it to the UK and run it on 240 volts. You know, whereas, you know, here it runs 120. So it's not that it's voltage sensitive, most devices anyway. That's why their effectiveness is less too, is because the problem has changed in the last 30 years and they didn't change with the problem. Are people wasting money then on a $9 power strip? Uh, a $9 power strip? Probably not. And I'll tell you why. Because okay. I understand, like, our product is in the $200 range, you know, so that's, you know, so for people know why you mentioned $9. A, their technology is sacrificial. So they, like you mentioned before, one or two, yeah, one or two big surges will definitely knock out a power strip of any kind, any of the right. surge protectors. And so you want it to be your canary in the coal mine. So a $9 surge protector would be better than a $50 surge protector. So if you take a brand that you go, if you're looking at Home Depot and you're looking at the two sets of surge protectors and you have a $9 one and a $50 one, people think oh, I better buy the $50 one. It's more, it's better. You know, it has, they call it a higher jewel rating. And I'm like, well, it's a sacrificial technology. So you want the canary in the coal mine. You want the canary to die, not the coal miner. So you don't want your equipment to have a higher jewel rating or a lower jewel rating than the equipment that it's being, that the protection device. You want it oh, the other way around. Interesting. Because if you don't do that, what their, their higher jewel rating lets more energy through. The reason it can say it's a higher jewel rating is they're set to even a higher voltage than a cheaper one. Cheaper ones are set at really much at the bottom. Now the caveat again with the cheaper ones is that um, they can't run continuously above 127 volts. So there's that caveat. There's a lot of like just in physics, there's always a balance, right? Of right. 
of properties and, and stuff. So, and it's important to say that you're saying that not so people do order a zero surge unit. It's that they might have a $9 power strip or even a $4 power strip. And basically within a year is safe to say it is by it's already used up. It's like right. it might still work and someone might be able to get power from one of the four to six outlets Right. but it's not protecting anymore. Is that indeed right. true? Right. That's probably true. In fact, um, when I came here, I got all my old surge protectors in my house and wanted to show them to Rudy and say, here, let's test them and see how bad they are. And he took one of them and he shook it. He goes, hear that? It sounded like sand inside there. And he said, that's the MOV. It broke apart. It's already dead. And that... It's also important to say, and I'm not just saying this for glory, is that it also becomes a safety factor. Right. Right. Yeah, because there's two modes of failure. There's, because it's a sandwich, a material. And so it either gets hot and then it melts together and fuses and you get these hot spots. And that's when you can get a fire. Or it breaks apart, like the one that sounded like sand in my thing. So that... That's a good way for it to fail is it breaks apart and nothing happens. You don't want it to fuse and that can happen. A lot of them have tried to mitigate that by enclosing them in ceramics so they can handle the heat, which there's a Taiwanese company that makes that component. You know, so there's there's that too. And the other thing I want to mention, because you've mentioned like the $4 strip, the odds are a $4 strip isn't even a surge protector. So you can buy just a strip that's what's called a relocatable power tap. And the way you can tell if yours is a surge protector or just a power strip is look for the UL rating. So if it says UL 1449, then it's a surge protector. If it says UL 1363, then it's just a relocatable power tap. The power strips are just a, a, a power device. It's a power distribution unit. It's not just a, it's not a surge protector and they don't, they probably won't fail because there's nothing in them other than a, a strip of material. Got it. On the other side, there are things that are called whole house surge protectors, right? Right. Mm -hmm. Those operate on the same, same MOV topology? Mm -hmm. Yes, they do. The do difference they? is they mm -hmm. use bigger ones so they can survive at the service entrance, I imagine, is the reason. But they, they also have a much higher voltage protection rating. So they start out at I've seen them as low as 600 volts, 500 volts, all the way up to 1,000 volts, depending on what okay. uh, company you look at. Um, we look at it this way. 80% of surges originate from inside your building. So, you know, if you put a guard on the outside of your bank vault and eight out of the 10 burglars are inside, it's not going to help you. Yep. You know, that's, that's one way to look at it. So they also say, well, you need a layer of protection. So you need to have inside surge protection on a power strip and have us. And, you know, if you feel comfortable, that's, it's not going to hurt you because it probably won't do anything anyway. Um, because the inside one's going to do all the work anyway. Because as the voltage rises, it's like a tide rising. So as the voltage rises, the inside one acts first because it's a lower protection rating. Uh, just that, that'd be true even for uh, MOV strips, not just our technology. Okay. Wouldn't a whole house surge protector protect appliances, ovens, microwaves, 
washers, dryers, anything that's electric, hot water heater? Well, there's two. The things that protect big appliances is having voltage. We're finding out as we, as I've been doing this and getting more, like if, like we don't necessarily deal with appliances, the big appliances, because A, they have a lot of power. The amount of energy in the max surge is only 90 joules of energy, which is the equivalent of 90 candles burning because a joule is about one, one joule is about a candle burning, something like that. So it's not a lot of energy. It's just that it's happening very quickly. In a electric oven that has 40 amps going through it, that little, that surge is actually nothing for that. It's really these sensitive low power, you know, like computers, TVs now that are very low power. They have the really sensitive components in them. Even a refrigerator that has a computer built inside better have some isolation from that motor that was causing, that's creating the surges to begin with. Uh, what happens in appliances is that if you have too many heavy appliances on the same side of your breaker panel, so in a house you have two sides of a breaker panel because you have two 120s that come into your house and every house is the way they do it. And if you put all the heavy duty equipment on one side, then the power company can't support that voltage that's running your equipment. And so if they all happen to run at the same time, the refrigerator, the heater, the uh, stove all run happen to cycle at the same time, the voltage will drop. And for motors, that's bad because the current will rise to meet the power demand of the device. So a simple calculation would be if you have a 1,000 watt device and it's drawing, or say 1,200, the math is easier with in my head, with 1,200 watt device. So you have a 1,200 watt device at 120 volts, that means you have 10 amps of power, of current, right? So if the voltage drops to 100 volts, because just temporarily, then the current has to go up to 12 amps for that power to be met. Well, for most devices, the problem with, with motors specifically, the issue is the more current you put in the motor, the hotter the windings get in the motor. The hotter the windings, the more you degrade the varnish that protects the, the windings from arcing. And so, uh, again, you get kind of that similar catastrophic failure all of a sudden, and then the motor fries. And then the technician comes in and says, oh, it was surge damage. It's like, no, it wasn't surge damage because a surge happens within one micro, you know, one oscillation of power, you know, you know, one sixtieth of a second. This is happening over several minutes probably, and maybe a few seconds after that. So it's 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 happening in a you know a hundred times longer time period. And that's really what the root cause for the for that stuff is. The best way then is to load balance your panel, which is it safe to say that any uh, licensed electrician would do that in the beginning? Yeah, they should. Yeah, the problem is when you do the renovation and the electrician gets a little sloppy and he's like, oh, I'll just put the new hot tub you just bought. Because that's what happened. That's what this all started was a customer for one of our electrician customers, you know, had this fancy home and they kept adding to it and adding to it. And then they, the other electrician was just throwing stuff wherever on the panel. And he started looking at the balance of it. He's like, I'm surprised that you could even run the equipment. Interesting. Okay. Let's assume that you have a properly loaded panel and it's mm -hmm. balanced with power. Zero surge units 
are meant at what you call as a point of use unit, correct? That's correct. Which means that wherever you're using a device, it would plug into that unit, which then plugs into the wall. Right. Right? Right. Number one, tell us why that is advantageous. Number two, explain to me how your first example of a surge coming through the back end, if you will, through Ethernet is solved with a zero surge unit when your computer is only plugged into that unit and not Ethernet cable that goes through the zero surge unit. Okay, so the first question, so plugging it in at the point of use or like we also have hardwired versions. So if you have like a dedicated line, uh, but yeah, but basically you want to be there because again, the surges are originating from inside the building. So, um, you know, for example, Wendy's is one of our bigger customers. They use us to protect their cash registers. So okay. the a cash register is a, actually like a very cheap computer. Uh, generally it's very cheap because they're, it's a very price competitive industry. So they're always going to be using the cheapest uh, device for the, for uh, the product. So very sensitive to any fluctuation. And then if you're in a restaurant, you have a lot of surges because you have the fryers, you have the bigger air conditioning, freezers, all that stuff. And it's in a small compact building. So you have a lot of things. So it's like having a lot of hoses and a lot of cars riding over those hoses. Right. And so, and you're, and you only have this little tiny patch of grass seedling that you're, that you're maintaining. So, um, you know, so if you, if you don't protect it at that point of use, then you could be hit from all sides from other devices. And so, you know, you, you want to be as close as you can to it. Um, it also helps for electromagnetic interference too, because we, we filter part of the kind of an, um, added benefit to our product is we filter out EMI noise too. So you don't get the radio noise that could mess up computer systems too. Um, so again, that works better the closer you are to the device. Okay. Um, and then the second part to your question, um, if you take the MOVs out of the equation, that automatically starts protecting your network. Because there are no surges on a data line. There's no energy on a ground line. So the only time you have energy on a ground line is if you have a fault, you know, something broke and it's, it, you know, it's there to protect humans from getting electrocuted, basically. Um, so if you take MOVs out of the equation, you don't have that issue. In fact, a lot of MOV protections will sell you network protection that you plug into the network into their power strip. And I remember discussing that with Rudy and he was explaining it to me. And I said, oh, so they're actually creating a product that protects you from themselves. And he goes, yeah, I never thought, but that's, that's what they're doing. And that's, that's the thing. So it's like, if you take them out of the equation, you don't have that issue. And so, um, you know, like the New Jersey the Department of Environmental Protection, all their networks are protected by our product. And they've never had an issue since they started. And that's, you know, for years and years, you know, probably decades at this point. How long does a zero surge unit last? Um, we're not sure. Probably outlive both of us. Really? You know, yeah, there's nothing in the product that should degrade. So I guess practically, I mean, if you're constantly unplugging and replugging, you know, I'm sure the receptacles, we use high quality receptacles. So I think they're rated for 10,000 insertions. So 
I mean, if you're doing that every single day, you know, eventually it's going to get loose, I would think, just from mechanical wear. Sure. Um, but from the guts and how it works, um, like it, we have a, I was story, tell the story that um, so we can, because our product doesn't wear out, we can performance test it. So instead of just a QC check where you just make sure it, you got continuity and that it gives power, we actually run it through 13 different tests. And one of the tests is we search, you know, we hit it with surges, 6,000 volt surges. Wow. And we, we make sure that it lets through the right amount of energy and all that stuff. And so that's like taking a car out on the test track, run it for a thousand miles, give it to you, and the car has no wear on it. The odometer still reads zero. Right. You know, that's basically kind of how our product works. And so because we have this system run by a computer, it itself has a zero surge unit protecting the computer that's running the system, right? right? So it's being exposed to surges all day long. And when I came here, the, one of the first you know months I said to somebody, one of the engineers said, how long this, I noticed, you know, there was literally a dust ring around the, the box because nothing has moved in that area. And I said, I picked it up and I was like, oh, it was, this was from 1996. So this uh -huh. is 2014. So, you know, 18 years, and we did the calculation, you know, kind of a rough estimate. Um, and it's seen the equivalent of 186 years worth of surges. Wow. So if you go by the thousand worst case surges a year, it was around 186,000 surges that particular unit had mm. seen. Does anything light up on a zero surge unit if it does fail? Uh, if it fails, the light would turn off. Okay. That That's really what it would do. Because, so the uh, green light... And that green light would go off if it failed. Right. Yeah, if the that, green light's saying it's got power, basically. And if it has power, it's working. That's it. Yes. There's no need for anybody that owns many of them to send them in to get tested every five years or 10 years. No, no. we've actually, we've had people who have some of the really old ones. We had one that was like 25 years old. And the guy was like, no, can you just test it anyway? He says, I'll pay for shipping. And Okay put it on the tester, ran it through the same 14 tests. You could not tell between that and a brand new product. Impressive. Very so, impressive. Okay. You know, that, that convinced me too, that, you know, when I'm telling these stories, I don't have to hem and haw about it. They will, there's nothing to do. It's like the most boring product. If you will have dust rings around it. Right. It just sits there, right? It's yes. very exactly unexciting <laughs> product. Yeah. It's yeah, one of the one of the other benefits too is it actually extends the life of your products. Like we still have a computer that runs DOS for, wow. for because it has not failed. And you know, the system still works for what we're using it for. It's not connected to the internet, who cares? It's 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 doing its job and it's um the same monitor too. And again, that is because the zero surge unit is not letting in the extreme voltage or amperage correct right so it's really keeping that dos unit safe right right we're just keeping giving it good power clean right. power now would you say that a zero surge unit is also what's known in the video file and audio file community as a power conditioner no technically we're not a power conditioner because we don't change the power so you don't change the good power. So if 
so that's always a caveat we have too is like if you're experiencing voltage issues we don't change it we're not an avr we don't have a transformer that's gonna change the power and make it a certain way like a ups would or you know battery backup and why is that zero surge hasn't done that come out with a product that also changes the power in many different there's many different ways of doing so right why hasn't zero surge done a one one box unit if you will um partly because there really isn't a need for that i mean your equipment like i said you could run i can run this laptop on 240 volts so if the power is at 100 you know because japan runs 100 volts we run 120 and, and europe runs 240 so most equipment is made by one company for the world they just have different plugs right. so there really is no need to condition if you have you know all the things that our product prevents you're good enough you know we, we there's no need even in the audiophile guys like you already have an amp that's doing that job for you you know most people don't realize a power amp is a conditioner so you don't need another conditioner for your conditioner right. we're just protecting your amp from getting bad stuff but you're conditioning the power because you're changing the ac to dc and then creating sound out of that where does a dedicated unit if you, somebody was to run a home run from their theater say back to their breaker panel right and they're going to run 10 gauge wire say because they have to have that dedicated 20 amp circuit mm -hmm. where would one and they don't want to use a point of use unit they want that right, right they want to dedicated line to run from a zero surge unit does that unit mount in the garage uh you want it near the breaker panel because near you need to disconnect i'm yeah. sorry down here in florida uh, the breaker panels are always in the garage it seems in so, my house it is in the garage too but okay. okay but my parents house it's in their basement actually right yeah so yeah new jersey is uh common with basements where down here it's very uncommon or actually yeah, well it would fill up with water right right <laughs> if you did that yeah all right so so it would be a line from the breaker say a from the breaker to the zero surge unit and then and another line on the other end right going to the dedicated wire correct yep. or dedicated outlet i'm sorry correct correct and, and it can you only run one dedicated line from that or could you run a branch circuit so you, you can, can run anything up to whatever the code would allow. I mean, as long okay. as you're up to 20 amps. I mean, our our dedicated product goes to 20 amps. 20 amps. So, okay. So as long as you're doing something within code, that's sure. fine with us. And as long as you don't put like a a vacuum cleaner <laughs> in the middle of it, you know, make sure that those outlets are not being used for something that's going to create surges. Right. And is that unit more expensive than a point of use unit? Uh, yes, because, uh, it has to come in a Huffman box, which has to have a UL rating. So it, it comes in a, a special UL box. And then, um, it also can go to 20 amps. So it and is, it is a little bit more expensive, but not that much more. Are, is it, I mean, can you give me an example of what the cost is? Uh, it'd be around, um, $300. Oh, okay. All right. So yeah. not awful. Definitely no. not and really great for someone that has a dedicated line in a audio room or a video theater or something like that right right, right. okay 
do you sell those for other what's the main purpose that you guys build those for um i would say commercial applications like we have wendy's was probably the first one of the first applications of that but we also have uh, digital sign companies use them um we've um alarm systems tend to not be plug in so we do uh like one of our big customers is actually the military use them in uh korea to for their fire alarms okay. uh, for their hospitals and, and medical buildings um some other hospitals use them um but yeah i would say mostly it's commercial you know, where it's it's some system like an alarm system, a access control system that's not just plugged in. And they don't want it ever to walk. So they don't want somebody to unplug it. And, you know, like with Wendy's, they started out with plug-in as they were doing the proof of concept. And then they realized that those things can walk. So they we actually, they have five branch circuits. So they have the point of sale. They have the menu boards that are now TVs behind them. They have the outside menu board for the drive-through. Okay. They have the office, and then they have uh, another TV in the lounge. And so those five circuits, we created a bigger Hoffman box that has all five circuits in there. So they could just put one box in and then wire everything. They actually wire it above the office. So is that unit available for residential use? If somebody had five circuits in a theater and they wanted that, is that something yeah, they could. accessible? Yeah, they but they, they have to have an electrician install it. I mean, that's, that's the code because it is hardwired. Sure. Absolutely. Or it has to be installed to code, put it that way. Yes. Correct. Depending on where you are. But they can still buy it is my point, right? Right, right. We do sell it. Sure. Yep. Okay, great. And then and uh, one other thing that you made, you didn't mention, but just so I could throw it out there is that the actual guts itself, we sell as an OEM module. So as a, for people who are designing larger pieces of equipment, we actually sell that as well. You know, there's companies that do like these um, big sorting machines for like the Amazon warehouse. Uh, they're down in South Jersey. Those guys use us, our OEM module. And so they actually attach it to their system so they don't have to worry about even, they don't need the Hoffman box because they already have their own box that they're putting it in. Right, so a company can take that OEM or that OE unit which is a zero surge unit which yeah. is basically a naked unit right it's right. the guts and then put it inside whatever device they have designed and manufactured right. as long as it meets code of course and then they have that surge unit built in correct right right and see our oem module is um ul recognized as a component so the advantage of there is that they can take it put it in if they're a panel shop, is what they're called, um, they can use their UL certification to say, okay, we're doing this the right way. So they don't have to get it inspected every single time. They probably just have to get qualified for the original design. And then when they keep making product, they just use, you know, the fact that our labels on there too. So this is going to sound like a really crazy thought. Are consumers allowed to buy those OEM modules for their do-it-yourself projects, such as the audio guys. There's a huge community um, of do-it-yourself audio guys on DIYaudio.com, for instance. Are those mm -hmm. people allowed to buy those OEM units for their equipment builds so they can put that inside? 
Uh, we don't do that. We don't sell to, we vet people. There's minimums too. So yeah, because we can't qualify you to say that you're installing it. Whereas, you know, I know OPEX is a company that's going <laughs> to, they have insurance basically okay. is what it comes down to. But, you know, whether people have bought the plugin and pulled the guts out and played with it, yep. you know, I don't know. <laughs> and you can't control that, obviously. Right, right. Well, I know one people ask, uh, people ask us a lot about um, battery backups because they, they kind of go hand in hand okay. as far as, um, you know, why do you, do you offer battery backups? You know, why don't you, all that stuff. Um, you know, it's something we would love to be able to do, but there's some caveats and some complications because our product, you have to look at the logistically what it is. It's kind of like the equivalent of, okay, you know, you have the audio files, right? They buy an amp, they buy a preamp, they buy a CD player, they buy a phonograph, they buy, they don't buy an all in one unit. Right. You know, because they justify the purchase because it's like, I need this amp because it has this quality and I buy this CD player because it's got, you know, five CDs instead of one, or I want this laser disc player because it can do European laser discs for my special collection or whatever. Right. And so there's a little bit of that concept that, okay, since one surge, one zero surge unit can protect any UPS, um, why would you put the two together? Because the UPS, first of all, doesn't last forever. So now you have to have battery compartments pull in and out, right? Right. Um, and then now you're changing your whole philosophy that we sell something that never needs to be, you know, replaced. But even if you get around that, because obviously, you know, people understand batteries don't last forever. There's a little thing called entropy, you know, that gets in the way that, um, you know, okay, well, what size battery do you make it? Right. You know, so I still now I have this relatively expensive component, the zero surge unit. Now I got to stock a 600 volt amp, 1000 volt amp, 2000 volt amp. Okay, well, now there's lithium batteries. So now do you want to use lithium? Do you want to use lead? Do you want to use nickel? I mean, whatever. There's some new thing that comes around that that's going to change the battery world tomorrow. Who knows? Right. So it's like, okay, now you got to stock all those different sizes. So I don't, you know, it doesn't make sense for us. The battery backup people use the metal oxide barrister. I mean, cause it's a five cent part. So that's easy to do. You can stock all the different battery sizes when the thing you're attaching it to is only worth five cents. But when you're attaching it to something that, you know, retails at 200 bucks, it's a lot different problem to have. Right. And so since we do work together, and you can buy the two outlet one and plug the UPS into us. It's not daisy chaining because we don't, if, if it has less than three receptacles, it's not considered a relocatable power tap. So our two outlet model gets plugged in the wall and then you plug the UPS into us. And then the UPS has the eight outlets on the back of it. And so you get the power through that, but we protect the UPS. We don't give it false trips because we're not making surges interrupt power. And so we make the battery last a little bit longer too. Would you say that having a UPS plugged into a zero surge unit that the MOV will never fail? Probably will never get activated, right? So it'll just be inert. Right. So it's it's certainly a safe unit to use then. And you yeah. don't have, have, have that concern going if it was just plugged directly into the wall. Right, because it'll never get, volt, the voltage will never get high enough for it. Because in a UPS, they're actually set to usually 400 volts. Is because that... you don't want, because you don't want the false trips all the time. You don't want these low level surges 
always interrupting power and then the battery has to kick in and then it, it keeps thinking there's power you know i i think i believe that's the reason because there's no other reason to not do that other than maybe you want it to last longer okay that's so, that's a really good point then and that's how i use them as well for sure just yeah. for full disclosure i have 10 zero surge units <laughs> I think I'm up yes. now. Um, it just never seems to end. There's always another reason to get one. However, I've never had a failure. And many, many people around me in Florida have had a lot of failures. So I want to say it's the zero surge unit, but I'm not willing to take the risk and not have them at this point. Yeah. So full disclosure. I appreciate that. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you one story too. We, um, so we have a piece of equipment by a company called Dranich that makes um, monitoring equipment for power. It's very high end equipment. It's like Fluke is another brand, but we sure. chose Dranich because it's a New Jersey company. So we you know, represent our uh, fellow New Jersey manufacturer. And what's nice about it, it's like the size of a, a iPad, like a thick iPad. And so you can plug it in and just it just monitors power. It actually is monitoring it um, we have a special probe that does uh, one megahertz sampling so okay. it's sampling a million times a second for power issues because mm. that's what you have to to look for surges how expensive and, is it isn't it uh it's about fifteen thousand. okay so we um you know i had it on for months at a time just trying to capture things and one cool thing we found is we're right near a solar farm and it seems like literally a quarter of four every day we'd get little ring wave come through. And I'm pretty sure it's that solar farm turning off mm. because they got to sync to the grid and then they got to desync from the grid when they turn off. And it's, it just seems like it was, it was exactly like at, you know, three forty nine and 30 seconds, almost every day. We'd noticed that for a while. And that's, that's, so we're pretty sure that's what that is because there's no other thing that could explain that. Even the power I've talked to the first energy, the company that provides our power, nobody could they said it's not our switching activity because they wouldn't do it at the same exact time every day got it so so there's that but then um last year it was the last two years ago no it was two springs ago we would have instead of the snow that we're having this year we used to have these crazy wind storms where it was just 60 mile an hour winds and then it was like every other week we'd have this crazy wind storm well one time the wind must have knocked power out uh, to us. And the way it knocked it out was a tree fell on a line, was bouncing on the line until it finally just broke or the line, you know, the transformer fried or whatever happened. So excitedly, we go to look at the drainage to see, okay, what happened? So the power went out right almost exactly at one o'clock in the morning. So from about 12 to one, so knowing that we see maybe three, four events a day at most, you know, in an exciting day, we see four events. How many events do you think we saw between 12 o'clock and one o'clock? 14,000 events. Wow. So there was 14, that the, it took about 10 minutes just to download the data because it was so much data because it saves it when it triggers that there's an event, it takes some the time before and after. Sure. So it was like, a uh, half a gigabyte of data that was being downloaded uh, out of this little tiny, you know, it's a cheaper computer. So it's, it right. took a little while through a USB thing. And when I saw that number, I was like, wait, is that right? And then I looked and it's like, you see it just like event, 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 event. And 
you know, some of the events were surges, some of it was voltage dropping, all these kind of things. Well, this was hitting everything in this building. And it hit me like the next day, nothing's, every single unit here is working fine. Right. Every computer is working, everything. There was one thing that failed. It was the light, the LED light that's on the door because it doesn't have a zero search unit on it. It was our canary. Mm. And so we noticed, I noticed because I usually the one that locks up at night and I flipped the switch for that outside light. And I noticed the light didn't come on. I was like, oh, yeah, we had that storm yes, you know, a couple of days ago. I never noticed that it wasn't coming on. That's, that's what failed. Interesting. It's almost, it begs the question of why not have, and I understand the expense with getting it approved and all, but a electric panel that has the zero surge built in for the entire panel, right? Um, well, you could, but then you're assuming they're not going to use a vacuum cleaner on that circuit. You know, that's one thing. Will a vacuum so, cleaner really destroy? Well, it creates surges. So if you have like a Dyson, because they have a two-stage motor and they go between the two stages, and it's on the same receptacle, the same branch circuit as your TV, you'll definitely destroy the TV. Got it. So that's that's one thing we can't control that. Because again, you don't need it for everything. I mean, you have right. ten, right? You have more than ten breakers. Yep. Right. So. Right. You know, that's it's a balance. And then, uh, the, like you said, the cost of that. Sure. Um, and then you have to have the arc fault now and the ground fault, and you know, at that point, you're talking about a panel that's probably like, <laughs> you know, <laughs> weighs a thousand pounds, and it's a right. uh, you need its own wall, you know, load bearing wall to, to attach it to. <laughs> Where does zero surge go from here? What is the, are there any plans for new products? Are there any plans for something different? What, what, tell us something exciting. Um, well, we, we just had, so um, from the business side of it. So as a, we're a small manufacturer, yep. I mean, and, um, you know, we, being that we're a small manufacturer, we get um, some help with local organizations. Uh, every state has what's called the MEP, the Manufacturing Extension Program. It's run out of the Commerce Department, and um, each state has their own version of it. So our NJMEP uh, has helped us with um, different things over the years, as I've taken advantage of you know their their uh, help because we get it at a lower cost. And the, like they did our video, they found the company that did our videos. They're helping us right now with our website where we do you know just updating it. But they also helped us with marketing stuff. So they helped us with getting a company that helps us with the social media posts and doing that kind of stuff. And so that's really helped our retail side of the business. Um, we also added uh, Amazon last year. So you can buy it from Amazon, not just from our website, which I was surprised how many people do, you know, they could do both. They still buy from Amazon. So Amazon is another kind of new thing that we've been doing. And, um, Again, I'm surprised how well it's been working. It's actually almost like 8% of our sales now come out of Amazon, which wow. is crazy. With no advertising, just threw it up there. They And we only have three products that we're selling there. We did it as a test. They kept calling me and saying, hey, can we put your product on our website? I'm like, yeah, but you cost too much. And they're like, no, we don't. And we're like, yes, you do. And then finally, we kind of looked at the numbers closely and realized, oh, I guess it's like the equivalent of having a sales rep. 
if you take all the percentages down, it really is like 8% is okay. what they charge you because of the price and because of other factors. And they do the the credit card and sure. returns and stuff like that. So that that works out. So that's one thing. Um, so my point of mentioning all that is that we kind of have our retail side. We're, we're on a good trajectory there. So then we had to look at this year, we're looking at our resellers. So we have a bunch of resellers that basically are installers or um, IT managers, those kind of thing. And so we've been, um, one thing we did just recently in the last two weeks was have webinars with them and find out what they want us to make or, you know, what their problems are or how they help them, you know, sell better. And so a couple of things we came out of the discussion, there may be something we had started, uh, actually it's sitting right here. It's something like we're having something recessed. Nice. You know, for people who want to do like uh, AV installations. Right. Um, we had tried making that in the past. There's still some technical hurdles and some mechanical things you have to get through and then look at the pricing at that point and come up with a better design. Um, and would that basically have an OEM module on the backside then? Is that the idea? It's basically like another plug-in model. So yeah, it would have a, you know, the chassis of the OEM module would be in there. Right. So it's kind of like combining our dedicated line ones with a plug-in because yep. you'd have to put it in a Huffman box so it could go in the wall. Yeah, I don't think our current our current metal would um, probably be rated for that, for being able to put inside a wall. So we probably have to put a Huffman box. Uh, uh -huh. That's That's a lot of that is now, you know, what are the rules? How much, you know, what size can you do? All these kind of things. So, you know, how deep they'd want it. How many receptacles? Two, four. Right. Know, those kind of things. As far as other new kind of things, I mean, there's things that we can do uh, within the scope of what our current certification are as far as length of cords, maybe bigger, maybe 12 outlets. I don't know. I mean, we really has to be... Um, I think the interesting problem about our product is that power hasn't changed and basically the needs really haven't changed that much. So, you know, the one thing I know people want too that we'd have to really go outside of our current expertise to do would be remote management of the power because the IT guys like that so they could turn on and off things remotely. Right. But then you got to deal with all the security and the IP and because we had one here uh, made by another company that we had uh, used with our server. And in what, eight years I've been here now? Only came in once where it even was remotely needed. Right. And then the problem was after three years, um, when PCI compliance started happening for credit card transactions, one of the things they do is they make you check out your network. Well, we failed. And I was like, why do we fail? We don't have anything fancy. We don't do anything bad. We have firewalls and all that stuff. It was because of that switch. I turned the switch off. We passed. Interesting. So then I looked into it and I found out it it was never updated. So it's like, you know, little things like that you have to be on top of. And it's, you know, that, that would be, it'd be nice. And I'm sure people think they need it. I think most computers nowadays turn on automatically. They reboot. When the power goes out, even in a long power outage, uh, you know, modems pretty much restart themselves. 
So, um, you know, how much of a need there is, I don't know. Jim, do other companies license the zero surge technology? Uh, we do private label for one company. And then there's a, another company that um, we originally made for them. Then they um, licensed it and, you know, it's, uh, they kind of split away from us at, at some point because then they got bought and sold by three other companies at this point. So. So Brickwall and Surgex licensed your technology, Rudy's technology, which mm -hmm. I would imagine you still own, that you now own, right? Well, some of the patents have worn up at this point, so it's not, not the secret sauce. <laughs> okay. So oh, yeah. Surgex, how does Surgex get around then making their own unit using the zero surge technology now? Uh, they have patent. They have one of the patents. They have one of the patents. Yeah. Yeah. Rudy gave them one. They, they have a different, it's a subtly different technology, but it practically it's the same. It's like so, adding uh, pepperoni to a plain cheese pizza. Uh, it's, it's like, no, it's like, uh, having pepperoni pizza and then also adding a little capicola in there. Okay. You know, pep, you know, or salami. Okay. So it's it's basically the same. It were up to 2000 volts, they're identical. After 2000 volts there's like a 4% difference. So it really their their market though is more the pro audio. They do like they did the Yankee Stadium sound system. Got it. They do casinos. So there's there's enough of a pie. We I mean me personally I like that there is other, there are other companies selling it cuz then we're not the, you know, crazy Right. company that only is doing it this way right so i think a little bit of competition is great because it it shows that we're legitimate they they tell the story just as well they they do a lot more road shows than we do because they're now part of a billion dollar company so they're owned by amatech so they get you know all sorts of marketing support that spreads that word out too so that's fine with me and their cost is higher that's the other thing that should be mentioned right that their units well yeah they do more too i mean they do have they do have that remote capability on some of their units. Right. Some of their units have uh, other bells and whistles on them too. So fair enough. How many employees make up Zero Surge? Uh, seven right now. So it's you, Donna, I believe is her name. Who, if mm -hmm. anybody calls, they always get Donna. It seems, and email. Yeah, yeah, Donna and I pretty much answer the phones. She's been working home during the COVID. Mm. So that she's the only one that's been working home because everybody else touches the product. And then so. it's manufacturing and are there engineers involved as well? Uh, yeah, we have a um, one engineer right now. We had two and then he went back to college to finish his degree. Um, so he helped develop the um, the unit we have with that has USB. Okay. The 6R, if you're familiar with that one. I am. It has a four port USB. Uh, he actually helped develop that one. Very cool. So small business, but obviously manufacturing a lot of product, right? Yeah, I mean we have about sixty different models all told, and then, um, but it's it's very easy to assemble. So we don't need a ton of people to do it, and right. um, we're not dealing with like uh, surface mount chips and things like that. So it's right. it's all it's if if anybody knows electronics, it's through hole technology. It's all through hole. And you do. All of the board assembly is done in-house? Uh, some of it is done outside. Okay. So we do some of the board stuff outside. 
Okay. But everything else is done inside. Some of it depends. Some of it, I guess half of it, say. Okay. Is there anything that I haven't asked you that you would like to share with us? Uh, Don will be remiss if I don't mention we do a, um, we do have military discount uh, that we do. Uh, if you have, you know, proof of your military service, send it in to us and uh, we'll give you a special coupon code. Um, and we expanded the program to where you can use it once a year. So we made it because somebody came back the next year. like, can I get another coupon code? So we're like, all right, we'll do it once a year. And um, the other thing is we don't have a lot of sales. We don't do a lot of gimmicks with that. So, the, you know, if you, you don't have to worry about looking for the sale, waiting to buy it. Um, I always hated that myself as a consumer. Um, we do do the, we'll do the, um, you know, the Cyber Monday kind of thing. We'll do, we'll, we've done different things every year. Um, so if you really want to wait that long, you can, you know, that's right. the best time to get the best price. Um, but because we don't want to compete against our resellers. So that's, that's the other reason we let them deal with that kind of stuff. Jim, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Uh, I yeah. certainly have learned a lot and hopefully everybody has as well. I will put some links below for some of the information that Jim has talked about. Please be sure to subscribe and smash that like button. Jim, thank you again. Uh, thank you very much. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening. Find us on YouTube and Facebook at the Intellectual People Podcast and online at the intellectualpeoplepodcast.com. Check back for exciting new episodes.